Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. I think we can pack our things up and head out after worship this morning. It's fired up. I was, uh, you know, came over from Spring Lake Campus, so I just caught the last few songs. But it's just a blessing to have, uh, you know, Tara leading us in worship this morning. It's fun having uh, kind of extended family members here with us from time to time. Uh, Tara, and uh, actually the first time I ever led worship was with Tara when I was a junior in high school. And so it's just so good to worship with her and the amazing team that we have as well. So we're ready for God's word now. Um, So looking forward to digging into it this morning. Uh, My name's Taylor. If we haven't had a chance to meet or you're new here at Harvest, uh, I'm our worship pastor. So that might be part of why I'm a little fired up about worship. Um, But as we continue our series, we're turning today to a new book of the Bible, the message from the prophet Malachi, everyone's favorite Italian prophet right? And thanks to the miracle of science, we actually have a photo that depicts exactly what he looked like. (laughs) My wife begged me not to tell that joke. And I just said it anyways. Full send. What better way for us to start our time together? So you can go ahead and turn in your book to the book of Malachi, not Malachi. He's an Israelite, not an Italian. And if you're looking, it might be easier for you to go to the Gospels and then turn left because it's the last book of the Old Testament. And so we'll get to Malachi 1 in a second. But before we jump in, just a little bit of context. You know, the last three weeks we've been studying through the book of Haggai and, right, a prophetic message to the people of Israel, a, a charge for them to pick up rebuilding the temple. They had begun, but they stopped, right? Pastor Dave preached to us about prioritizing the presence of God, that there was this promise of a future glory, a future kingdom, a new Jerusalem where God's presence would dwell, and, um, but it required obedience and repentance on the part of God's people. That brings us to the book of Zechariah, which is between Haggai and Malachi. We're not going to be studying through it, but just a quick summary of it. So in, in, in Zechariah, they're in the process of rebuilding the temple. They listen to the message of the prophet Haggai, and they're actually close to finishing it. And then again, in, in Zechariah, there's this promise of a future kingdom of a priestly king who would come to rule and reign. But just as Haggai, this promised kingdom required repentance and obedience on the part of God's people. And so that's where we come to the book of Malachi, right? And and here in Malachi, the people have, have heeded or they've taken heed of the message from the previous prophets. They've built the temple. It's now finished. And, and they've, they've sought to obey. They've sought to follow the Lord and offer up worships offer up their worship. Um, but the reality is, is that here they find themselves, they've, they, they've built the temple, they're no longer in exile, they're here, but this promise of a future kingdom has yet to arrive. And they find themselves in a place where they're starting to grow discouraged, where they're starting to grow apathetic, and they start to compromise. Is it easy for us sometimes to grow apathetic when we're somewhere on a journey between where we are and where we want to be, right? Like when you're on a health journey. Is anyone, is anyone on a health journey right now? Anyone willing to admit that in church? Okay, a few people. The 9 a.m. at Spring Lake, no one raised their hand. I know you're there. It's okay. We're all trying to be healthy. And so when you're, you're on your health journey, you know, maybe you've got a diet or you're trying to eat well, you're exercising, but, but it's really easy for us to kind of look at where we are right now and where we want to be, what our goal is, and for us to be like, oh, I'm never going to get there and grow apathetic and compromise and, uh, you know, ditch the diet and, and binge Little Caesars or whatever. And on a much grander level, this is where the Israelites find themselves 
in the middle of where they are and where they want to be, where God promises to be this future kingdom. And in many ways, church, we find ourselves in a similar in-between, and there's the temptation to grow apathetic, right? For us, the priestly king who is promised by the prophet Zechariah, he has come, and his name is Jesus. The spirit at the end of the book of Zechariah that was promised to be poured out on God's people has arrived. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he dwells in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. But we still find ourselves in the in-between. We still find ourselves with this promise of a future, of the new heavens and the new earth, where we will be with God perfectly in his presence forever. And we see where we are now in this broken, fallen world and where God promises that we will one day be and it would be easy for us to grow apathetic and compromise. And even on a personal level, in Jesus we are called sinners saved by grace. And there's this future promise that we'll be made perfect, we'll be glorified, we'll be just like Jesus. But it's easy for us to look at where we are in our process of sanctification and where God promises we will be and to grow apathetic and compromise. And this is really where the book of Malachi speaks into us in this in-between place, in this place where we are tempted towards apathy and compromise. And the theme verse of the book of Malachi is Malachi 3.7. We're going to study it, this passage at length in a few weeks, but it's a great way for us to start our time because it encompasses the whole book. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Return, let revival come. Would we be a people who are marked by repentance? Recognize the path that you're on and you've gone down in apathy and compromise and return to the way of God. Return to the things that God has called his people, the Israelites, but also in turn us, what he's calling us to do. And so in Malachi 1, we see the focus, this call to return from apathy and compromise, and the focus, the subject, is worship. And you're like, of course our worship pastor is here preaching about worship. Like, did he pick that passage? Did he plan it? No, it just happened, but I'm pretty fired up about it. So we're going to talk about worship today. But of course, when we come to talk about worship, you know, it's not just about congregational singing. It's not just about praise through song. It's much broader than that. Really, worship, it's about our whole lives as a living uh, a sacrifice, the way that we live. And so if you're taking notes today, our big idea is the way that I worship reveals what I think about God. The way that I worship and fundamentally every part of how I live says a lot about what I believe about God. Said another way, my doxology reveals my theology. Right? Doxology is this word that ultimately means praise. My praise, my actions show my theology, a big word for belief about God. And I highlight that phrase because I found this quote from Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, the great teacher of the Bible. She said this, sound theology should always lead us to doxology and transformation. And so as we come to this topic of worship today, that's the focus. What we believe and what we, the way that we worship and live are, are joined together and they should be in harmony. And so today as we hear from the prophet Malachi and the message from God of the people of Israel, we're going to examine their faulty theology and how it leads them to a faulty worship. But my encouragement for you today wouldn't be that we would just focus on this people thousands of years ago, but we would look internally in our hearts and to consider what are the lies that we find ourselves believing about the character of God and how does that flow into our living and lead us to a place of apathy and heartless uh, worship. 
And would we receive the invitation to return to worship that God longs to receive from us and our souls long to give, that we are hardwired to exist for? So let's start out together in Malachi verse 1. Read with me in verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I really like that word oracle. I don't just like, you know, oracle is a pretty cool word, but that's not the only reason I like it. It's because that word oracle carries this, this meaning of a, a burden, a weight, a heaviness. We know that here at Harvest, right? That a lot of times, if not every week, when God's word goes out, that sometimes it can be a heaviness, a hard thing to hear, a burden. But ultimately, would we remember, even as we come to consider this oracle, this message today, that the purpose isn't just to make you feel bad about yourself or for you to leave this place just with another weight uh, in this life on you, but instead that that conviction would lead us to response and repentance and worship, right? And believing the words of Jesus, he said, my burden is light. And so there may be a, a burden as his word goes out, but may that conviction lead us to be lightened in the way of Jesus. So let's turn to the message and what it says and means for us today. Verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So in these first uh, five verses, we're going to see two false beliefs, two two, uh, thoughts, bad theology that leads us to heartless worship. The first, the pathway to heartless worship is this. Question God's love. The Israelites question God's love. God says, I love you. They say, how? How have you loved me? The Israelites are asking that question as they're staring in the face of difficult circumstances, of a set of living that is different than their expectations were. Right? They rebuilt the temple, but when the temple was finished, it wasn't like as nice and as big as they were hoping it would be. It's kind of like the housing market right now, right? You don't get much house for your value. And, um, you know, they were, they were no longer in exile. They were in their own land, but they continued to face political oppression. They still had other nations lording over them and trying to govern them. You know, they're sitting there being like, God, you promised a future kingdom. You promised things would look like this. So we thought it was going to mean this. And where are you, God? Where's the kingdom? Where's your presence? You said if we rebuilt the temple, your manifest presence would be there, but it's not here. Where are you, God? Things weren't going their way as they expected and as they believed, so they questioned God's love. And I just want to ask you, do you you ever find yourself doing that, questioning God's love? God, how do you love me? Where are you right now? How could you let my life be this difficult? How could you let my car break down again? How could you let this happen to me? Why is this happening? God, you say you love me, but how? Because I'm just not seeing it. And transparency in church, I would say that that's something that I definitely struggle with. That in the face of life not going my way, and me having an expectation, and something differently happened, that it leads me to a place of like, God, what the heck, where are you? Why, why aren't you here? Why don't you love me? And God responds to this question. When we question God's love, he responds and, and we see this at the end of verse 2. It says, How have you loved me? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. 
Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Heavy, isn't it? Kind of dense. Seems heavy-handed against these Edomites, the people of Esau. But it's important as we examine God's response to their question of his love, that his intention, his goal here is to comfort the people he's loved, he's chosen, to give them confidence that he loves them. And he does that by showing that he has chosen them in his sovereign will, in his grace. He chose them. His steadfast love, his covenant commitment to them continues as he chooses them over and over again and gives them chance after chance to recognize his grace and love and follow him. You know, the word uh, hated here, that's, that's a sign of the Edomites. You know, we hear that. It's like God hated them. It's like, I don't like that. It doesn't feel, feel great. And we would, be, would we understand that the word hate, hated there is less a sense of like God's animosity towards these people and more of his rejection of them because of their sin. It's a lot like the idea of predestination, that the emphasis isn't on the rejection but on his choosing. See, the question is not how could God choose some and reject others. The question is how could a good God choose to love, to save any of us? That we are all sinners, we are all fallen short of the glory of God. How could a good God choose to love and save any of us? How? Why? It's not because Jacob was better than Esau. It's not because the Israelites were better than the Edomites. Why? Because of his sovereign grace and his steadfast, committed love. He just chooses to despite our sin. You know, that instead of asking the question, God, how have you loved me? We should be asking ourselves the question, God, how could you love me? I heard a pastor named Robbie Simons, a pastor in Canada, say it that way. Instead of asking, how have you loved me? We should be asking, how could you love me, God? It makes no sense. Not, God, what are you doing for me now? But, man, God, how could you possibly love me and choose me and save me at all? But they questioned God's love, and it was leading them to heartless worship. So we see this, this second belief, the second bit of theology, the second step along the pathway towards heartless worship. Read with me in verse 6. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? The second thing along the pathway towards heartless worship is to disregard God's honor. I love the way that God, through the prophet Malachi, says it here. He says, hey, children, people, I'm your heavenly father. I love you. I've chosen you. In my sovereign grace, I've protected you. I've provided for you. I've delivered you. Have you no appreciation for me? Have you no honor for me? Have you no recognition of who I am and what I've done as your father? He speaks from a relational standpoint as an authority and as one who deserves our honor and respect and fear. But he also speaks from an authority lens, you know? He says as a master, he says, hey, I'm your creator. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who set the earth in motion. I'm the one who keeps the sun rising and the sun setting. Do you have no respect for me? Like, do you have a boss? Do you listen to what your boss says? Do you do what your boss asks you to do? Do you have respect and honor for him? Because, you know, me, I'm the big boss. I'm Bowser at the end of the Mario game. Just had to throw another Mario reference in there. He's like, I'm the CEO. I am the greatest authority over you. 
And, you know, I would just say this, this seems to come up from time to time just with where we're at as a, as a culture and a country and a world that in a culture where any form of authority is seen almost exclusively as a bad thing, would we remind ourselves that God has placed uh, human authorities over us and when we submit to them and everything that is not sin, we ultimately submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father, our big boss God, and how could we give honor to our bosses and not God, but the reality is in our time, it's more like, man, we don't even give honor to our boss. Why would we give honor to God? And we disregard his honor. And we see that this is true in the people's response to God's indictment. Continue with me in verse six. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? God, you say we disregard your honor, but how? The Israelites asking this question is kind of like the husband, let's just say it's me, who goes to his wife, she seems upset and off, and he's like, hey, is something wrong? Like, what did I do? And she's like, what did you do? Are you serious? You don't know what you said? You don't know how you hurt me and disrespected me? And God, uh, unlike many gracious wives, is like, you want to know how you've despised me? I'll tell you. And he tells us in the next set of verses. And, you know, maybe seriously, though, you're asking this question. Like, I'm making the claim that the Israelites uh, disregarded God's honor. They questioned his love, and it led them to faulty worship. But how? And not just them, but you. I'm saying that I think so many of us have disregard for the honor of God, have a low view of God that is leading us to faulty worship. And maybe you're asking yourself the question, how? If you're making this claim of me, I want to know. And Malachi allows us to do that. In the first five verses, we see the pathway towards heartless worship, the lies that we believe that lead us to a place of apathy. And the next set of verses really outlines what this heartless worship looks like, the activity that flows from misconceived notions about the character of God, the how. Because the way that I worship reveals what I think about God. We're flipping that. What we think about God dictates the way that we worship. So if we have wrong views of the character of God, it will flow into our living. So heartless worship looks like four things we'll see in the next set of verses. And the first thing we already saw right here in verse six, heartless worship uh, uh, is I take his name in vain. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing that heartless worship looks like. I take his name in vain. Verse six says, you despise my name. And that word despise uh, is really not this attitude of disgust but it's a low view of God. It might be better translated, worthless. You view my name as worthless. And in a lot of ways, it, it, it mirrors the third commandment. Exodus 27, right? Many of us who've grown up in church were familiar with the, the Ten Commandments. The third one says this in Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. For whatever reason, growing up in church... Uh, I felt like when I was taught that, it was like the don't say swear words verse, right? Don't say bad words. And certainly an application of this would be, hey, we need to hold the name of God in, in, in high regard in the way that we speak. But this isn't a don't say swear words verse. What this verse is saying here, what this commandment is saying, it says don't take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And again, that word vain is the same meaning as uh, despise in Malachi 1 to view God as worthless and lowly and to dishonor him. That to take the, the name of God in vain is, is really this idea that we would claim the name of God, that we would bear his name, that we would say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a child of God. But then for our living, the way that we live and think and act, 
to not match up at all with the name that we claim. For us to say that we follow Jesus, but for nothing about our lives to reflect that we follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Because when I learned that, when I heard that, it just really meant a lot to me because I was like, whoa, that's, that's so much better than just don't say swear words. It's about so much deeper than that. You know, it's a little like this. A few weeks ago, um, I was out to lunch with a few of our pastors, and we were coming back from lunch, and uh, we were coming uh, down south from Norton Shores, and the bridge was still closed. So we're having a nice discussion, a debate about when's the right time to merge down to one lane. And I know the Bible says don't bring up fits of controversy in church as a preacher, but so I won't press in too much, but there was a varying of opinions. And I was of the mind that there's a dotted line that becomes a solid line. And so if I merge at the dotted line, then I am within the law. It's what some people would say, a beautiful thing called the zipper merge, right? Oh man, when that's happening, it's just a work of art. There were some other more extreme positions in the car. I won't expose anyone on staff here, but Pastor Dave was like, (laughs) hang on, you'll be surprised here. Pastor Dave was like, oh no, I merge immediately as soon as everyone merges. He's like, dude, you're merging like that? Do you have a harvest sticker on your car? Better take that off your car, man. Like, what are you talking about? I'm following the law. I'm doing what's right. He's like, take that sticker off your car. And I will say that today I still am a strong believer in the theology of the zipper merge. But that word was an oracle for me. It was a bird and it convicted me. I was like, oh man, yeah, I am driving around with my church's name on the back of my car. Man, is the way that I drive, the way that I carry myself, line up with what we as a church represent. And so much more than the name of Harvest, this isn't about our church, the name of our God church, do we claim to be Christians? Like, is it there on our Facebook profile? But nothing about our life reflects the name of Jesus, because that is to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, and it is heartless worship. And this, this idea, this is foundational for the rest of the heartless worship, because heartless worship ultimately flows from a heart that questions God's love, disregards his honor, and takes his name in vain. We claim his name, but we don't match up, and we see that play out in the rest of their action. Read with me in verse 7. So God says, you despise my name. They say, how? He says, I'll tell you exactly how. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Jump ahead to verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that is, its food may be despised. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This is really saying here that heartless worship means I give my leftovers to God. I give him the scraps. I give him what's left. I give him what's worthless. See, animal sacrifices were a regular practice in worship for the Israelites. Priests made burnt offerings twice daily, and at least three times a year, every Israelite would bring an animal at the festivals as an offering of worship, as a sacrifice. And just to summarize briefly why they gave animal sacrifices, you know, it had symbolic meaning for what was taking place. And there's a, a great resource, a ministry called The Bible Project, and they say they made animal sacrifices as symbols of ultimately two things. The first is that it was a, a symbol and a reminder of the devastating effects of sin and selfishness. 
And secondly, that the animal's life was offered as a symbolic substitute, that the animal's life was symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover their sin, a symbol of something that was worth and able with the shedding of its blood to wash us clean in forgiveness and to purify us from our sin. But rather than offering their best animals, right? Like, man, I'm going to be purified. I'm going to be washed clean by this thing. Like, I got to give my best, my first, something that is a, a worthy that would say that, yes, this purifies me. But instead, they would give their lame, the sick from their flocks, ultimately things that didn't cost them, right? Worship should inherently cost us something. It is a sacrifice to say that we serve and we live for something outside of ourselves, but they brought their leftovers out of laziness, out of licentiousness, you know, half-hearted repentance. Like I'm just, man, the law says that I must bring an animal and I'll be forgiven. So I brought an animal, but it says bring a clean, pure animal. Their hearts weren't in their worship. You know, as I think of really a modern example of, of something that would help make sense of this for us, I, I, I saw this, uh, this uh, invention. There's this page called like Useless Inventions or something. And, and I saw this, I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of what it's like. Brilliant invention, isn't it? I'm just saying my birthday is coming up in a few months. But this is such a good picture of what's happening here because it's the Israelites, right? They're, they're taking their first, they're taking what's theirs. Man, a few things in life, like the first bite of a burrito, like that's the tops. But then as they eat it, like out of the bottom into a taco is just going the burrito juice. Are there many things grosser in life than someone else's burrito juice? Here, God, I've taken what's mine. Here, you can have what no other person would ever want. Do you forgive me? Is this good worship? But truly, church, for us, we know, you know, for us, we don't bring animal sacrifices of worship. We don't bring tacos. We bring ourselves. Do you know that? That in Jesus, that, that we are now called sacrifices of worship. Romans 12.1 says that, that we are living sacrifices of worship, that we should, uh, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to ask you, church, for you, you know, it's not an animal, it's not a burrito or a taco, but are you giving your leftovers to God? Are you giving him the bare minimum? Are you giving him what no one else would deem worthwhile with your time, with your talent, with your energy, with your treasure, with your things, with your family, with your home? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as we take stock of where we prioritize our time and energy and things, do, do we give the, the leftovers to God? The third thing that heartless worship uh, means, read with me in verse 8, as it continues, it talks about bringing these uh, worthless sacrifices, is that not evil? Then God says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And here what this is saying is that heartless worship is, I care more about what others think than God. The New American Commentary, it just really uh, briefly and well explains what's happening here. That in this time, that they would bring food to a ruler's table, they would bring only the best available. If they didn't, it was because they despised him and cared nothing for his favor. Yet the very purpose for offering gifts to a governor was to please him and gain his favor. Valuable gifts would declare the glory of the recipients. And church, do we do this? 
Do we live to appease and get the approval and favor of other people? Like we want to present ourselves and show ourselves uh, uh, as something that is good to other people, but not caring what God thinks. Do you care more about what people think than God? Are you seeking your approval, your belonging, your affirmation from people rather than the Lord? Galatians 1.10 says it this way, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are many of us in the room that quite simply, um, we have a uh, worship of people problem. We fear people more than God. We exist for people pleasing. Would we not do that? Would we not care what others think more than, more than the Lord? And the last thing that heartless worship looks like is this. My worship and obedience are an obligation. Man, verse 13 could certainly be said of us and our worship and obedience in many moments. God says, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Like, man, being a Christian is exhausting. Worship is exhausting. Man, it's such an obligation. Like, oh, man, I have to come to church again? Man, the music was long today. I was ready for that to be over. Man, I don't like this guy. I like the normal preachers better. Man, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about what's for lunch later. Just checking the box if I came to church. Man, you know, Christians are supposed to read the Bible first thing in the morning. And so I know that I must be a good Christian. So I'll flip open my Bible to a random page, read three to five verses, and I've done my job. I will pray. Christians pray. So what do I do? I pray at meals in front of other people. I'm a Christian. My community, my small group, like, man, it's May. I'm so glad that small group's almost over and I get the summer off. Can't stand those people. I only go to small group because my spouse makes me. But I promise you, I'm not telling you about anything that's happening in my life. Like, man, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to have the classic interaction of, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. But inside, like, ah, but it's just an obligation, just checking the boxes. Man, serving, I'm just doing it because they tell me to all the time. That is heartless worship. And I think that there are many of us in the room, you know, I've been here for sure before, but there's some of us where it's like, you are a Christian and, and your worship and obedience feel like an obligation. And if our hearts are not in it, I promise you that there are people in the room who are checking the boxes of religion and it's not fulfilling you. You're like, man, this whole Christian thing, it's not going very well. I don't really enjoy it. Because when we do the checking the boxes, things of Christianity, when our worship and obedience is an obligation, it makes us miserable because our hearts aren't in it. And there's a reason for that. Because our heartless worship, there's a result of it. And the result is this, that God wants nothing to do with it. God wants nothing to do with our heartless worship. It's an obligation to us. We don't want to do it. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. Verse 9 and 10 show us that. It says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Heartless worship, God is not in it. It is void of the glory of God. It is void of the favor of God. It is void of his power, his presence, 
his person. He's not there. And this is true for, for the Israelites here in Malachi. Malachi 3.1 shows us that the manifest presence of God is not there. And what comes after the book of Malachi, do you know? It's the last prophetic message, this call to return, to revival, to refrain from heartless worship. And after the book, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years. No more prophets. No more movement. Just this oracle that went out. Return. Turn from your apathy and compromise. And they don't do it, so there's just silence. And for us today, church, are you, are you experiencing silence from God? Do you feel like you're in that period of like, man, I just feel like God doesn't really seem like he's there. I'm not really hearing from him. Like, I'm not really excited about the things of God. Do you know there's a verse um, that says that our prayers, when we're living in sin, that they're not heard by God, that it's almost like there's a ceiling that caps our prayers. Our prayers are not heard by the Lord. And as a result of that, uh, uh, we also don't hear from God. And maybe you're there in the silence, and I hope it's not 400 years of silence for you, because I don't say that again to just burden you and make you feel bad about yourself, for you to be like, yep, I'm a bad Christian. Yep, I'm a bad person. Yep, God doesn't love me. Like, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to invite you in is you don't have to stay in the silence. You don't have to stay in a place of heartless worship. You don't have to stay in a place where the presence of God is absent from your life because after 400 years of silence, what happens? Out of the silence came the roaring lion, came Jesus, who lived the life that we could not live, who died as the once and for all sacrificial lamb that by his blood that is still speaking, we are forgiven. And do you know that, church? people then who are longing for the presence of God, that now for us by faith in Jesus, that the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God now lives within us. It's amazing. And I just want to invite you, don't stay in the silence. Don't stay in your heartless worship. It's a miserable existence. There is an alternative. And when we surrender ourselves and follow Jesus and embrace him as the pure offering of worship, this is the alternative. The alternative is a pure heart of worship. Again, back to Romans 12.1, we are called living sacrifices, ought to give our, our bodies as pure and holy. And our, our offerings of worship, our lives, our attempts, they are accepted only in Jesus alone. And so as a result of what Christ has done, would we come to a pure heart of worship in him alone? And here's what it looks like. Three things from those verses um, at the end. Verses 11 and then to 14. Let me read it quickly. It says, For from the rising of the sun to the setting of its name, my name will be great among the nations. And at every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Jump ahead to verse 14 at the end. He says, for I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is prophesying of the future reality when Jesus came. That now pure worship is possible in the great king who came. And it's not just available for the Israelites. It is now available for all people. Israelites, Edomites, Jews, Gentiles. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but when we come through Jesus, we can praise his name and have access to the presence of God. And this is what it looks like. Three things from there. First, recognize God's greatness. 
recognize his greatness. That's what it said. My name will be great. Do we see his name is great, his love, his honor, and it leads us to reverence and awe. And I just want to ask you, do you find yourself regularly in awe of the presence, the greatness of God, his love, his honor? Man, when we get God's love for us, that makes no sense. When we have a, a right view of God and his holiness, but also his grace, it leads us to reverence and awe. And as a result of that, second, we give God what he deserves. When we see him rightly, when we see his greatness, and we're on our face in humility and reverence and awe of his goodness and glory and love, we give him what he deserves, which is our first fruits in spirit and in truth. You know, the Old Testament talks about this idea of first fruits, giving your first uh, fruit of every tree, your first grain, your first uh, dough of bread, your first animal, your best. And, and the New Testament actually says that we are the first fruits of salvation that we are now the offering of worship. So giving God what he deserves is ultimately giving him fully of ourselves, our best, our all. And I, again, I wanna ask you as we consider what this means for us, what does it mean for you to give God what he deserves? What does it look like for you to give your first fruits in spirit and in truth? Maybe God is impressing this upon your heart. Man, God, my, heart, my worship has been heartless in this area. And God, now I wanna give you my best, my first fruits in spirit and truth in Christ alone. Maybe you have something, but here's just a few quick ideas. The first hour of my day and devotion, man, what a thing it is to start your day out with the Lord and to say, everything that I do is gonna flow and live from what you say about me, God, what you say about the world. The first day of my week in Sabbath and worship, like here we are, we're here together to sing his praises, to open his word, to fellowship and encourage one another, that we can be sent out and live from a place of God, you get our first. The first check that I write in stewardship to God's kingdom, the first priority of my giftedness in serving. Like if we really believe what is true about Jesus, then our response would be to say, God, take my first, take my best, take my all. It's for you, for your kingdom, for your glory, for the new heavens and the new earth. And it was a result of our pure-hearted offering of worship, a heart that is gripped by the greatness of God, us giving what God deserves, first fruits and spirit and truth. The results, do you know? It's not silence. It's not that God rejects it and says, I don't want it, shut the doors. Instead, he delights in it. He inhabits it, right? He is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. And we receive the blessing. We receive the blessing. And maybe you hear that and you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, I want a blessing. I want things. I want money. I want people. But the blessing is him. A pure heart of worship is to receive the blessing, which is him. Not money, not an easy life, but him. The thing that our apathetic, compromising souls long for is him, his glory, his favor, right standing with God, and it is ours in him. And so what comes to mind is this. Again, we're still in the middle. If you believe in Jesus, there's still this future promise of you being perfected in the new heavens and the new earth, but we're not there. And what comes to mind is a song that we sing here often at church that says, sing like the heavens are waiting. And church, I want to ask you, are you singing like the heavens are waiting? Are you singing like that's your future? Like men at Vertical Men Nights, I've seen so many of you there. Sunday nights, we are fired up all together in the room. And I just want to ask you, why aren't you singing like the heavens are waiting on Sunday? Students, I've been at summer camps and winter camps where God's doing a great move and, and we're singing like the heavens are waiting, but then we come back to a routine and normal life and, and we grow to apathy and compromise. 
sing like the heavens are waiting, women at, at vertical women's summer series nights and women's conference. We're singing like the heavens are waiting, but are we doing that all the time? And this isn't just about congregational worship, praise through song. But if worship is not just music, but our whole lives, are we living like the heavens are waiting? Do you read God's word like the heavens are waiting? Do you pray like the heavens are waiting? Do you love your spouse like the heavens are waiting? Do you do your job like the heavens are waiting? Do you rejoice in suffering and trials like the heavens are waiting? Do you steward your money and things like the heavens are waiting? Do you make disciples and tell people about Jesus like the heavens are waiting? And so as we uh, hear this word today, we're gonna close in worship. And we do that every week, right? My invitation to you isn't that you would uh, uh, just pack up your things or try to beat the traffic and leave early, but instead we would respond. And so I want to invite you to stand as we prepare to do that. You know, we say here at Harvest that we don't worship to prepare for the preaching. We preach to become better worshipers. That if the heavens are waiting, a future in his presence forever, where we are perfect and he is right here, are we worshiping today like the heavens are waiting? And so we're going to sing a song. We normally sing this song over you in response or reflection. But instead, I want to invite you to declare these truths as repentance from your heart of heartless worship and a return, a turning to offer worship that is acceptable to him. So let's go ahead and join. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll sing the song. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now. And God, I pray that our hearts would just be stirred and that we would see that in you that we can offer worship that you desire and that our souls long for. So God, would this not just be a moment where, where our hearts are stirred, but instead would we begin to live this reality and begin to live uh, not with heartless worship, but with a pure offering of worship in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.